Chapter Four, Book Three of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Chapter Four. Barbara Lovell. Los Gitanos son encantadores, adivinos, magos, curomanticos, que dicen por las reas de las manos lo futuro, que ellos llaman Buenaventura, y generalmente son dados a toda superstición. Dr. Sancho de Moncada. Discurso sobre expulsión de los Gitanos. Like a dove escaped from the talons of the falcon, Sybil fled from the clutches of the sexton. Her brain was in a whirl, her blood on fire. She had no distinct perception of external objects, no definite notion of what she herself was about to do, and glided more like a flitting spirit than a living woman along the ruined ambulatory. Her hair had fallen in disorder over her face. She stayed not to adjust it, but tossed aside the blinding locks with frantic impatience. She felt as one may feel who tries to strain his nerves, shattered by illness, to the endurance of some dreadful yet necessary pain. Sybil loved her grandam, old Barbara, but it was more with a love tempered by fear. Barbara was not a person to inspire esteem or to claim affection. She was regarded by the wild tribe which she ruled as their queen-elect, with some such feeling of inexplicable awe as is entertained by the African slave for the obeyer woman. They acknowledged her power, unhesitatingly obeyed her commands, and shrank with terror from her anathema, which was indeed seldom pronounced, but when uttered, was considered as doom. Her tribe she looked upon as her flock, and stretched her maternal hand over all, ready alike to cherish or chastise, and having already survived a generation, that which succeeded, having from infancy imbibed a superstitious veneration for the cunning woman, as she was called, the sentiment could never be wholly effaced. Winding her way, she knew not how, through roofless halls, over disjointed fragments of fallen pillars, Sybil reached a flight of steps. A door, studded with iron nails, stayed her progress. It was an old, strong oaken frame, surmounted by a gothic arch, in the keystone of which leered one of those grotesque demonical faces, which the fathers of the church delighted to adorn their shrines. Sybil looked up. Her glance encountered the fantastical visage. It recalled the features of the sexton, and seemed to mock her, to revile her. Her fortitude at once deserted her. Her fingers were upon the handle of the door. She hesitated. She even drew back, with the intention of departing, for she felt that then she dared not face Barbara. It was too late. She had moved the handle. A deep voice from within called to her by name. She dared not disobey that call. She entered. The room in which Sybil found herself was the only entire apartment now existing in the priory. It had survived the ravages of time. It had escaped the devastation of man, whose ravages outstripped those of time. Octagonal, lofty, yet narrow, you saw at once that it formed the interior of a turret. It was lighted by a small oriel window, commanding a lovely view of the scenery around, and panelled with oak, richly wrought in ribs and groins, and from overhead depended a moulded ceiling of honeycomb plaster-work. 
This room had something, even now, in the days of its desecration, of monastic beauty about it. Where the odour of sanctity had breathed forth, the fumes of idolatry prevailed, but imagination, ever on the wing, flew back to that period, and a tradition to that effect warranted the supposition, when, perchance, it had been the sanctuary and the privacy of the prior's self. Wrapped in a cloak composed of the skins of various animals, upon a low pallet, covered with stained scarlet cloth, sat Barbara. Around her head was quaffed, in folds like those of an Asiatic turban, a rich, though faded, shawl, and her waist was encircled with the magical zodiacal zone, proper to the sorceress, the Mago Cineo of the Singara, whence the name Zingaro, according to Moncada, which Barbara had brought from Spain. From her ears depended long golden drops of curious antique fashioning, and upon her withered fingers, which looked like a coil of lizards, were hooped a multitude of silver rings of the purest and simplest manufacture. They seemed almost of massive unwrought metal. Her skin was yellow as the body of a toad, corrugated as its back. She might have been steeped in saffron from her fingertips, the nails of which were of the same hue, to such portions of her neck as were visible, and which was puckered up like the throat of a turtle. To look at her, one might have thought the embalmer had experimented her art upon herself. So dead, so bloodless, so blackened seemed the flesh, where flesh remained, leather could scarce be tougher than her skin. She seemed like an animated mummy." A frame so tanned appeared calculated to endure for ages, and perhaps might have done so, but alas, the soul cannot be embalmed. No oil can re-illumine that precious lamp, and that Barbara's vital spark was fast waning was evident from her heavy, bloodshot eyes, once of a swimming black, and lengthy as a witch's, which were now sinister and sunken. The atmosphere of the room was as strongly impregnated as a museum with volatile odours, emitted from the stores of drugs with which the shelves were loaded, as well as from various stuffed specimens of birds and wild animals. Barbara's only living companion was a monstrous owl, which, perched over the old gypsy's head, hissed a token of recognition as Sybil advanced. From a hook, placed in the plaster roof, was suspended a globe of crystal glass, about the size and shape of a large gourd, filled with a pure, pellucid liquid, in which a small snake, the Egyptian aspic, described perpetual gyrations. Dim were the eyes of Barbara, yet not altogether sightless. The troubled demeanour of her grandchild struck her as she entered. She felt the hot drops upon her hand, as Sybil stooped to kiss it. She heard her vainly stifled sobs. "'What ails you, child?' said Barbara, in a voice that rattled in her throat, and hollow as the articulation of a phantom. "'Have you heard tidings of Luke Bradley? Has any ill befallen him? I said you would either hear of him or see him this morning. He's not returned, I see. What have you heard?' "'He is returned,' replied Sybil faintly, "'and no ill hath happened to him.' "'He is returned, and you are here,' echoed Barbara. "'No ill hath happened to him, thou sayest. "'Am I to understand there is to you?' "'Sybil answered not. "'She could not answer. "'I see, I see,' said Barbara, more gently. 
her head and hands shaking with paralytic affection. A quarrel! A lover's quarrel! Old as I am, I have not forgotten my feelings as a girl. What woman ever does if she be woman? And you, like your poor mother, are a true-hearted wench. She loved her husband, as her husband should be loved, Sybil, and though she loved me well, she loved him better, as was right. Ah, it was a bitter day when she left me for Spain, for though to one of our wandering race all countries are alike, yet the soil of our birth is dear to us, and the presence of our kindred dearer. Well, well, I, I will not think of that. She's gone. Nay, take it not so to heart, wench. Luke has a hasty temper. Tis not the first time I have told you so. He will not bear rebuke, and you have questioned him too shrewdly touching his absence. Is it not so? He did not. Trust me, you will have him seek your forgiveness ere the shadows short and neath the noontide sun. Alas, alas, said Sybil sadly, this is no lover's quarrel which may at once be forgotten and forgiven. Would it were so? What is it then? asked Barbara and without waiting Sybil's answer, she continued with vehemence. "'Has he wronged you? Tell me, girl, in what way? Speak, that I may avenge you. If your wrong requires revenge, are you blood of mine, and think I will not do this for you, girl? None of the blood of Barbara Lovell were ever unrevenged. When Richard Cooper stabbed my first-born Francis, he fled to Flanders to escape my wrath, but he did not escape it. I pursued him thither, I hunted him out, drove him back to his own country, and brought him to the gallows. It took a power of gold. What matter? Revenge is dearer than gold, and as it was with Richard Cooper, so shall it be with Luke Bradley. I will catch him, though he run, I will trip him, though he leap, I will reach him, though he flee afar, I will drag him hither by the hair of his head, added she, with a livid smile, and clutching at the air with her hands as if in the act of pulling someone towards her. He shall wed you within the hour, if you will have it, or if your honour need that it should be so. My power is not so departed from me. My people are yet at my command. I am still their queen, and woe to him that offendeth me. Mother! Mother! cried Sybil, affrighted at the form she had unwittingly aroused. He has not injured me. Tis I alone who am to blame, not Luke. "'You're speaking mysteries,' said Barbara. "'Sir Piers Rookwood is dead.' "'Dead?' echoed Barbara, letting fall her hazel rod. "'Sir Piers dead? And Luke Bradley? "'Ha! Is his successor. "'Who told you that?' asked Barbara, with increased astonishment. "'Luke himself. All is disclosed.' And Sybil hastily recounted Luke's adventures. He is now Sir Luke Rookwood. This is news, in truth, said Barbara, yet not news to weep for. You should rejoice, not lament. Well, well, I foresaw it. I shall live to see all accomplished, to see my Agatha's child ennobled, to see her wedded, ay, to see her well wedded. Dearest mother, I can endow you, and I will do it. You shall bring your husband not alone beauty, you shall bring him wealth. "'But, mother, my Agatha's daughter shall be Lady Rookwood!' "'Never! It cannot be!' "'What cannot be?' "'The match you now propose!' "'What mean you, silly wench? Ha! I perceive the meaning of those tears. The truth flashes upon me. He has discarded you!' "'No, by the heaven of heavens! He is still the same, 
unaltered in affection. If so, your tears are out of place. Mother, it is not fitting that I, a gypsy-born, should wed with him. Not fitting? Ah, you, my child, not fitting. Get up, or I will spurn you. Not fitting. It is fitting. You shall have a dower as ample as that of any lady in the land. Not fitting. Do you say so because you think that he derives himself from a proud and ancient line? Ancient and proud. Ha! I tell you, girl, that for his one ancestor I can number twenty. For the years in which his lineage hath flourished, my race can boast centuries, and was a people, a kingdom, ere the land in which he dwells was known. What if by the curse of heaven we were driven forth, the curse of hell rests upon his house? I know it, said Sybil, a dreadful curse which, if I wed him, will alight on me. No, not on you. You shall avoid that curse. I know a means to satisfy the avenger. Leave that to me. I dare not, as it can never be, yet. Tell me, you saw the body of Luke's ill-fated mother. Was she poisoned? Nay, you may speak. Sir Piers death releases you from your oath. How died she? By strangulation, said the old gypsy, raising her palsied hand to her throat. Oh, cried Sybil, gasping with horror, was there a ring upon her finger when you embalmed the body? A ring, a wedding ring. The finger was crookened. Listen, girl, I could have told Luke the secret of his birth long ago, but the oath imposed by Sir Piers sealed fast my lips. His mother was wedded to Sir Piers. His mother was murdered by Sir Piers. Luke was entrusted to my care by his father. I have brought him up with you. I have affianced you together, and I shall live to see you united. He is now Sir Luke. He is your husband. Do not deceive yourself, mother, said Sybil, with a fearful earnestness. He is not yet Sir Luke Rookwood. Would he had no claim to be so? The fortune that has hitherto been so propitious may yet desert him. Bethink you of a prophecy you uttered. A prophecy, ha! And with slow enunciation, Sybil pronounced the mystic words which she had heard repeated by the sexton. As she spoke, a gloom like that of a thundercloud began to gather over the brow of the old gypsy. The orbs of her sunken eyes expanded, and wrath supplied her frame with vigour. She arose. Who told you that? cried Barbara. Luke's grandsire, Peter Bradley. How learned he it? said Barbara. It was to one who hath long been in his grave, I told it. So long ago it had passed from my memory. Tis strange. Old Sir Reginald had a brother, I know, but there is no other of the house. There is a cousin, Eleanor Mowbray. Ha! I see, a daughter of that Eleanor Rookwood who fled from her father's roof. Fool! Fool! Am I caught in my own toils? Those words were words of truth and power, and compel the future, and the will be, with chains of brass. They must be fulfilled, yet not by Ranulph. He shall never wed Eleanor. Whom then shall she wed? His elder brother. Mother, shrieked Sybil, do you say so? Ah, oh, recall your words. I may not. It is spoken. Luke shall wed her. Oh, God, support me, exclaimed Sybil. Silly wench, be firm. It must be as I say, he shall wed her, yet shall he wed her not. The nuptial torch shall be quenched as soon as lighted. The curse of the avenger shall fall, yet not on thee. Mother, said Sybil, if sin must fall upon some innocent head, let it be on mine, not upon hers. I love him, I would gladly die for him. 
she is young, unoffending, perhaps happy. Oh, do not let her perish. Peace, I say, cried Barbara, and mark me. This is your birthday. Eighteen summers have flown over your young head. Eighty winters have sown their snows on mine. You have yet to learn. Years have brought wrinkles. They have brought wisdom likewise. To struggle with fate, I tell you, is to wrestle with omnipotence. We may foresee, but not avert your destiny. What will be, shall be. This is your eighteenth birthday, Sybil. It is a day of fate to you. In it occurs your planetary hour, an hour of good or ill, according to your actions. I have cast your horoscope. I have watched your natal star. It is under the baleful influence of scorpion, and fiery Saturn sheds his lurid glance upon it. Let me see your hand. The line of life is drawn out distinct and clear. It runs. Ha! Ah, what means that intersection? Beware! Beware, my Sybil! Act as I tell you when you are safe. I will make another trial by the crystal bowl. Attend. Muttering some strange words, sounding like a spell, Barbara, with the bifurcate hazel staff which she used as a divining rod, described a circle upon the floor. Within this circle she drew other lines from angle to angle, forming seven triangles, the bases of which constituted the signs of a septilateral figure. This figure she studied intently for a few moments. She then raised her wand and touched the owl with it. The bird unfolded its wings and arose in flight, then slowly circled round the pendulous globe. Each time it drew nearer, until at length it touched the glassy bowl with its flapping pinions. "'Enough!' ejaculated Barbara, and at another motion from her rod the bird stayed its flight and returned to the perch. Barbara arose. She struck the globe with her staff. The pure lymph became instantly tinged with crimson, as if blood had been commingled with it. The little serpent could be seen within, coiled up and knotted, as in the struggles of death. "'Again, I say, beware!' ejaculated Barbara solemnly. "'This is ominous of ill!' Sybil had sunk from faintness on the pallet. A knock was heard at the door. "'Who is without?' cried Barbara. "'Tis I, Balthazar,' replied a voice. "'Thou mayest enter,' answered Barbara, and an old man with a long beard, white as snow, reaching to his girdle, and a costume which might be said to resemble the raiment of a Jewish high priest, made his appearance. This venerable personage was no other than the Patrico, or hierophant of the canting crew. "'I come to tell you that there are strangers, ladies, within the priory,' said the Patrico gravely. "'I have searched for you in vain.' continued he, addressing Sybil. The younger of them seems to need your assistance. "'Whence come they?' exclaimed Barbara. "'They have ridden, I understand, from Rookwood,' answered the Patrico. "'They were on their way to Davenham when they were prevented.' "'From Rookwood?' echoed Sybil. "'Their names! Did you hear their names?' "'Mowbray is the name of both. They are a mother and a daughter. The younger is called... "'Eleanor!' asked Sybil, with an acute foreboding of calamity. "'Eleanor is the name, assuredly,' replied the Patrico, somewhat surprised. "'I heard the elder, whom I guessed to be her mother, so address her.' "'Gracious God, she's here!' exclaimed Sybil. "'Here? Eleanor Mowbray, here?' cried Barbara. "'Within my power! Not a moment is to be lost! Balthazar, 
Hasten round the tents. Not a man must leave this place. Above all, Luke Bradley, see that these Mowbrays are detained within the abbey. Let the bell be sounded. Quick, quick, leave this wench to me. She is not well. I have much to do. Away with thee, man, and let me know when thou hast done it. And as Balthazar departed on his mission, with a glance of triumph in her eyes, Barbara exclaimed, "'Sir, no sooner hath the thought possessed me than the means of accomplishment appear. It shall be done at once. I will tie the knot. I will untie, and then retie it. This weak wench must be nerved to the task,' added she, regarding the senseless form of Sybil. "'Here is what will stimulate her.' Opening the cupboard, and taking a small phial, "'This will fortify her. And this,' continued she, with a ghastly smile laying her hand upon another vessel. "'This shall remove her rival when all is fulfilled. This liquid shall constrain her lover to be her titled, landed husband. Ha, 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 